Welcome to MNI's FedSpeak podcast. I'm your host, Pedro da Costa, and today I'm happy to welcome Dr. Stephen Kamen of the American Enterprise Institute to the program. Dr. Kamen spent 32 years at the Fed Board, culminating in his role as Director of the Division of International Finance, where he guided the direction of economic research and the formulation of the staff's global economic forecast, which he regularly presented to the Federal Open Market Committee. He was a key advisor on international economic and financial policy to the Fed Chair and other central bank governors, and also represented the Fed in international groups like the G7, the G20, and the BIS. Thank you so much for joining FedSpeak. Thanks, Pedro. It's uh, fun to be here, albeit only virtually. Really nice to have you. So let's start with uh, the news of the day, if you wish. This morning, CPI hot off the presses. It was a little bit hotter than expected. The underlying, the, the core number was a little hotter than forecast. As you know, the Fed is widely expected to pause next week. And I'm wondering, does this number change anything in the short term? And does it potentially add to the chance that they'll hike later on this year? Well, I also did not love today's CPI report, which I guess I would describe as a mixed bag. Headline inflation actually picked up from 0.2% which it had been over the last couple of months, 2.6% on a monthly basis. Pretty big hike, increase in the headline to 3.7%. Now that mainly reflected rises in energy costs. And that is something that the Fed will tend to look through, although it is worrisome that it's happening at this time. Core inflation, as you mentioned, was more subdued, but it did pick up from 0.2% in the last couple of months to 0.3%. Now that actually mainly you know, looking at the innards reflected a a lessening of the pace of deflation in the goods component. So that's not terrible. And it's also true that on a year over year basis, core inflation continued to fall from 4.7% in July to 4.4% in August. So all, all told, I mean, it wasn't a bad report, but at the same time, it kind of looked like a bit of a slackening of the pace of disinflation that we've been enjoying in recent months. I think it's certainly too soon to say that progress toward getting to the 2% target is stalled, but it gives one a little pause. In terms of the implications for Fed policy, I don't think it gives anybody enough ammunition to say, to change their mind. So I'm with other economists in guessing that the Fed will pause next week, but they'll keep that last rate hike in the SEP between now and the end of the year. And I guess to the extent that the uh, news today had any effect, it might be to reinforce conviction that it's worthwhile to leave that rate hike in the forecast. So what is your view as to how this disinflationary process is likely to work itself out for the remainder of the year and early next year? Is it going to be a bumpy road? You know, Will there be enough evidence of disinflation for the Fed to actually pause potentially after that, that one last rate hike with that they may or may not deliver? Well, I've been heartened by the rapid decline in inflation since last year, despite the strength in the U.S. economy and despite the moderate strength in wage growth. So I become partial to a story that involves inflation continuing to decline toward 2% as the supply side disruptions of the past are resolved, as corporate markups, which rose a lot in the early part of the pandemic inflation surge, start to decline and as that decline in markups is reinforced by declines in aggregate demand in the product markets. 
And so the story here is, is that this reduced aggregate demand, along with resolved supply side issues, could lead to price disinflation without necessarily having to basically raise unemployment or put downward pressure on wage growth per se. And I think that last aspect is important because I'd like to see a situation where going forward, real wages can basically get back up to their previous trend. So all told, that felicitous story seemed to be supported by the data of the last half year, and that was good. But that was always kind of a somewhat optimistic Goldilocks story and could always be supplanted by the more conventional story that you'd need slower economic growth, possibly a recession, certainly increased unemployment in order to get inflation down that so-called last mile. So in that context, any stalling of progress toward disinflation would lead one to put more weight on the need for, for slower growth or a mild recession and higher unemployment and less weight on the Goldilocks story. So in that context, the August CPI report, while a mixed bag, I think probably points a little bit more toward the conventional Phillips curve story and a little bit less to the Goldilocks story, but it's still really too soon to tell. So what do you make of this this Goldilocks story that the market has become quite enamored of, the idea that that we can have a soft landing despite this very historically aggressive rate tightening campaign that we've had? How plausible is that? Yeah, well, I think it's moderately plausible. I mean, having been in the forecasting business for many decades, I don't really have a great, a lot of faith in the ability of economic forecasters to do more than basically extrapolate off current trends. So if you think about the narrative that forecasters came up with like a year ago, it was based on on textbook theory and based on history. And it said, you know, in response to a large surge in inflation, the Fed is going to have to hike rates a lot. That is going to slow the economy. That is going to lead to a recession and that will get inflation down. And that's the way you need to get inflation down. And that story was very appropriate to the business cycles of the last half century, which were largely caused by strong aggregate demand, pushing up inflation, and requiring a contractionary response on the part of the Fed. So I'm content to view the events of the last couple of years as being a very different type of episode. You know, some some very transitory aggregate demand stimulus, mainly coming from the federal government, combined with these supply side disruptions. So I was content with the possibility that as the federal stimulus transfers went away and uh, as the supply disruptions associated with COVID went away, that you could get a reduction in inflation as quickly and easily as it rose. And the data of the last year seem to support that. But that does not preclude the possibility that we've had all the easy disinflation that we're going to get, and the last mile might be a lot tougher. So if that proves to be the case, right, and uh, inflation kind of plateaus toward the end of the year and seems to be hovering above levels consistent with that sustainable decline to target, what strategy do you think the Fed could employ? Because policymakers seem pretty keen on like halting rate hikes, if not now, then at least after one more maximum, two more hikes. Do you think they would then shift into kind of a promise of higher for longer? And second part of that question is what does higher for longer actually mean to you? Well, To back up just a second, the interest by the Fed, by the FOMC, 
and lots of other Fed officials in kind of like pausing, maybe stopping the rate hikes and seeing how inflation plays out is based on the felicitous inflation developments of the last half year with inflation falling a lot. Okay. That will turn on a dime if the Fed officials become convinced that inflation is much more intransigent than they thought. And I think it's important to kind of like back up and understand the fundamental kind of like trade-offs that the Fed faces, which is if the Fed basically lets inflation get out of control, then Powell will come down in history as the next Arthur Burns. And that is the number one thing that Powell does not want to happen. Conversely, if the Fed pushes the economy into a mild or even moderate recession, I think that it will easily be able to argue that that was the price of getting inflation back to target and not having a repeat of the 1970s. So the Fed's, you know, kind of risk return trade off is wildly asymmetric. As long as it looked like inflation was heading downwards, the Fed could kind of like transition to a posture where it was content to wait and maybe top out on rate hikes. But if it looks like inflation is more intransigent, I would say that number one, it's a no-brainer that it'll do that last rate hike that's in the FOMC, you know, some t- in the SEP sometime between now and the end of the year. And then it'll wait as long as it needs to uh, in order to get inflation down. And if it looks like inflation is actually picking up rather than just staying, you know, at a, at a plateauing, uh, yeah, I can see more rate hikes. Now, the important thing to keep in mind here is also is what is the real economy doing in a situation where employment growth is still moderately strong, unemployment is super low, and GDP growth is like at or above like estimated potential, there's almost no downside in terms of keeping monetary policy tight. So in that, so the only so the only situation in which the Fed will actually, you know, like have to rethink whether it wants to keep rates high is if the economy goes into like I'd say a moderate, not even a mild recession. But until then, it's almost costless for the Fed to keep monetary policy tight, you know, in order to get inflation down. What about the idea that the Fed would keep the level of restrictiveness the same, but kind of gradually lower rates as this inflation proceeds in order to to keep real rates constant, basically? That idea was floated by John Williams of the New York Fed. It could and probably would certainly do that. But I think that from a PR standpoint, that will only make sense once it has some surety that inflation is heading downwards in the right direction. So on the one hand, it's certainly not going to wait until inflation gets to target before it starts lowering rates, but it will not start cutting rates until it has moderate surety that yes, inflation is heading down. And so in that context, that could have been where the Fed was getting to as early as early next year. But a couple more monthly readings like the one we had in August would more likely reinforce convictions among the hawks on the Fed board or FOMC 
that that the last mile is tougher and requires tougher uh, measures. So the notion of proceeding cautiously or pausing and waiting is also underpinned by the idea of monetary policy lags and that you know there's still some effect to come. Do you have a firm view on that still wildly raging debate about uh, whether they've shortened or not because of more direct communication and the market's ability to maybe digest those signals from the central bank more quickly? I have a very unfirm view on that. And I would assert nobody knows you know, what these lags are. So, you know, the standard phrase is that monetary policy has these, quote, long and variable lags. And I'm just saying, I think I, it's a little unclear whether they're really long, but I think they're definitely variable, at least in the sense that we don't know what they are. I would say, though, that if I had to choose between deciding that the lags were very short and that we'd already seen most of the impact of Fed tightening on the economy, or choosing to decide that, that the lags were long and that we have yet to see a lot more impact uh, of the policy tightening, I would opt for the latter. In other words, I, I think at least you can come up with several reasons why you might think that the lags are longer than usual at this time. And one of them is that the economy is still digesting a certain amount of excess savings, it's just about depleted, but there might still be a little bit in the pipeline. And there already was a lot in the last six months. So that would have been a cushion, right, that protected aggregate demand against the tightening and thus, in essence, lengthened the lags. Another factor is the fact that households and firms had already, in various ways, uh, extended their debts at super low interest rates. Their balance sheets are strong, and that also protects them against the higher rates. And then a third factor that people are talking a lot about is the fact that um, with rates having been so low and a lot of mortgages contracted at those low rates and now so high, basically a lot of people that might move housing, right, sell their houses, et cetera, are staying put. Uh, and that also probably introduces some adjustment lags into the process. And, and then finally, just in terms of like the proof of the pudding being in the eating, we've seen an historically very unusual rise in rates and the economy is still going very strong. So you can either believe that the monetary policy tightening has little effect on the economy or that it's going to take longer than usual. What about the financial stability side of things, given your, your finance expertise? Do, are you surprised that not more things have broken? Or was the Fed's response to the March banking turmoil so overwhelming that it some, simply masked some of the underlying uh, cracks in the system? I'm a little surprised that both the rate hikes haven't slowed the economy down further and that they haven't led to more breakages uh, in the financial system. I'm going to impose on your listeners by bringing up a paper that I helped write along with a lot of colleagues from other central banks in 2018. Please it do. Was, it was a paper on the risks of low for long interest rates, which is what we were dealing with back in 2018. And it was a, it was a project involving almost like 20 central banks. And uh, we identified some different scenarios for how low for long interest rates could play out. And one of them was a was what we called a snapback scenario, 
And in this scenario, interest rates would stay low until, you know, 2023. And then in response to a surge in inflation at that time, interest rates would pop up substantially. And we detailed some of the risks to that. One of them was that banks, right, who had basically extended their maturities of their assets in response to the low for long environment would then get hit and liquidity squeeze. That's exactly what happened to SVB and its uh, companions uh, earlier this spring. And it was something that, bizarrely, the Fed did not anticipate very well, at least not in their stress tests. Another risk that we highlighted, and I will admit that at the time, I thought this was a little bit obscure, was that pension funds that had used derivatives to protect themselves against too low interest rates would get caught in a liquidity squeeze which is exactly what happened in Britain last year. So in some sense, the stresses from higher interest rates was anticipatable, but a lot of people did not anticipate it. So I could see further stresses down the road from this, but I would say that the financial system in general has been buoyed up by first the strong balance sheet position of of many households and many firms, and as well as the fact that the economy has been uh, going moderately strongly. Those are pretty impressive hypotheticals from 2018. Have you called your co-authors to virtually high-five them and be like, wow, we really nailed this? I've had some communication with some, and I've put out a couple of articles in the media, and I think they're somewhere on my website. I just wanted to delve into your international expertise for a little bit. Wondering, the Fed is fairly domestically focused and insulated, but I wonder what you see as both the global effects of Fed tightening and then how, how is it impacting emerging markets and maybe other developed economies, but also what are the potential spillovers from global economic weakness, uh, China's own financial troubles back to the United States that we might not be paying such close attention to at this point? Sure. This is actually my main topic of intellectual or, quote, intellectual, unquote, inquiry. So you may have to edit this to, uh, I mean, it'll go on for about an hour, but I think you can get it down (laughs) in 15 minutes. Uh, So I want to first explain how Fed monetary policy spills over to other economies and use that as kind of like the context for this discussion. To cut to the chase, I think that the impact of Fed spillovers in this round on the global economy have been a little less than you might ordinarily expect. So in terms of these channels, okay, think of, you know, so first, when the Fed tightens a monetary policy, that tends to impart a contractionary effect on the other economies in the world, because tighter monetary policy leads to lower US GDP, lower imports, and thus lower exports on the part of our trading partners. So that channel doesn't seem very important at present. Because, in fact, as we've discussed, the monetary policy tightening hasn't actually slowed the U.S. economy. So channel one, I think we put aside. Channel two is to the effect of the monetary tightening on raising the value of the dollar. Now, that higher dollar is a mixed bag for other economies. On the one hand, it helps them actually by making their exports more competitive, their, their currencies more competitive, and thus their exports. On the other hand, it hurts them because it raises the cost of repaying dollar debt. 
which is important for a lot of economies. And also because their uh, currencies are weaker, it may raise uh, import costs and thus inflation for them. Now, as it turns out, those are recipes for a lot of trouble for emerging market economies in particular. And that's exacerbated by the fact that the Fed tightening has been in response to high inflation. And a lot of research I've done with my colleagues, we show that when the Fed is tightening in response to strong economic growth, uh, that, that, that tends to be fine for emerging markets because they get to export more anyway. But when the Fed is tightening in response to high inflation, that's especially deleterious uh, for emerging markets. And that's kind of what we saw like during the debt crisis of the 1980s. So you would have thought that the Fed tightening of the last year and a half would have been really bad for emerging markets, but they've actually been weathering the storm pretty well. I think that's mainly because their fundamentals are a lot stronger than they used to be. And in particular, they've been unusually proactive in terms of raising interest rates even ahead of the Fed. And that's really helped to uh, boost investor confidence. So the second channel, dollar appreciation, I think, again, hasn't been that egregious. And then the third channel by which Fed tightening tends to spill over to other economies is by tightening financial conditions in the United States. And then kind of like through capital flows and portfolio balance uh, motives, that tightness in U.S. financial conditions spills over to other countries. Now, there again, we're not seeing that much uh, financial stress in most other emerging market economies. And I think a good a big reason for that is that the Fed tightening hasn't led to that much tightening of financial conditions in the United States. And that's quite apparent if you look at different indices of financial conditions in the states. So all told, it looks like the impact of Fed tightening on the rest of the world less egregious than usual. And in part, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that financial markets have remained happier than you would have thought uh, under the circumstances. One follow-up on that is, doesn't the, from a domestic standpoint, what you pointed out about financial conditions not having tightened that much, doesn't that suggest that the Fed just hasn't done enough to fight its own inflation problem? So that is a bit of a mystery as to why financial conditions and market optimism have remained you know, as ebullient as they have. I would tie it to a couple of different factors. One of them is the, the economy remains strong. You know, and that heartens uh, markets. And the second factor uh, is that, you know, is that the Fed is ex widely expected to be successful at getting inflation down and successful at eventually getting interest rates down. Yeah. So let's put it this way. If the Fed succeeds in those uh, objectives, then those expectations will be met and our Goldilocks scenario will have transpired, in which case the Fed uh, actions will have been exactly appropriate. If that uh, story does not materialize and the Fed has to tighten more or stay high for longer, then those factors will be unwound. I expect financial conditions will tighten quite quickly. Yeah, that makes so, sense. Okay. You know, that's uh, our, our uncertainty in which we operate. Okay. Well, let's. What about the reverse effects? What about how the the potential spillovers for us from uh, from global affairs? Right. So I will say to start off with that, despite my great interest in international affairs and the fact that the Fed was paying me 
uh, pretty decent money to monitor the rest of the world economy in order to look at its impact on the United States economy, that actually the spills, the so-called spillbacks from the rest of the economy uh, to the United States have actually been rather modest. And that has to do with the fact that the, that the, that the U.S. economy is actually moderately closed. Uh, exports of GDP of only 11%, imports of GDP of only 15%. That's definitely at the low end. And so what that means is, is that a contraction of the world economy by itself tends not to impact the U.S. economy that much. When we did our modeling, you know, that we often present uh, in front of the FOMC, looking at the implications of some type of a global uh, disturbance on the U.S. economy, we often had to kind of like augment the modeling scenario so that we would not only kind of like assume a certain contraction abroad that had an impact on U.S. exports and imports, but we would have to add to that kind of like financial sentiment effects uh, that depressed U.S. markets. And that tended to be a more important uh, avenue by which foreign disturbances affected the U.S. economy. And that and that's very relevant to what people are talking a lot about today, which is sort of a China problem leading to concerns for the world economy and for the United States. And I would, I would actually refer you to an excellent paper that my colleagues at the Fed put out in 2019 called Global Spillovers of a China Hard Landing. And, and they explain how, again, a China uh, recession or depression by itself wouldn't really hurt the United States, nor is the U.S. Uh, financial system all that exposed directly you know, to assets in China. But a China hard landing that uh, led to uh, turmoil in global financial markets, that could be the main way in which a China hard landing impacted the U.S. economy. That was Dr. Stephen Kamen. Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and former Fed Board Economist. Thank you so much for coming on FedSpeak. Well, thank you for having me. A lot of, a lot of interesting food for thought in your questions, so I enjoyed it greatly.